Happy New Year, family. You are, uh, if you're here, you are a part of that special elite crew. Because historically, did you know that the first Sunday of the year is one of the lowest attended Sundays in church for the year? Did you know that? People are just exhausted, something about Christmas, in-laws, whatever. Some of you at home, you're like, yeah, that's us. Welcome. We're glad you're here. My name is Zach. I'm one of the pastors here, associate pastor here at Groton Bible Chapel. And uh, the first three Sundays of every year are not a part of a series. We do a lot, if you're new, we do a lot of series throughout the year, often preaching through different books of the Bible, themes, things like that. And, and the first Sunday of the year is kind of a one-off, meaning Gary came to me and said, Zach, you get to preach on whatever you want. Woo! It'll be from here still. We're going to talk about the Word. And then the next two weeks, we, we get to look at, you know, what has God been doing over the past year? And then what are we called to as we move forward? So we're excited about those things. I, uh, I'm going to pray us together and I'll uh, dive in. You know, Heavenly Father, I, I ask, Lord, that today you would give us really clear steps as we think about 2022 as we think about how we want to be different a year from now, Lord, more godly, more patient, as we think about the fruit of the Spirit working that's the, the more, out in our lives, God, I pray that, that you would give us clarity, Lord, and that you would give us encouragement as we think about, you know, growing, growing this year as we open up your word today. I ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. My problem with lust started around age 10. Now, this is before computer. This is before I had access to the internet. For me, it took access to some lingerie magazines that were poorly hidden and found them. And that's where it began. From the beginning, I knew that what I was feasting my eyes on and what was going on in my heart and my head. I knew there was something wrong with it, but I never heard about it in the church and I didn't hear about it in my home. And so I did what a lot of people do and I hit it. And I hit it well. Eventually, we did get a computer and we did get access to internet. It was the kind of internet access that required you to turn the phone off in order to plug it in. And so we had that. And then eventually the computer found its way into my bedroom. I heard some sighs. What's interesting is a lot of kids today have that same access in their pockets. There were protections. My stepdad, who had gotten into web design, was very into computers. He had set everything up. He knew way more about it than me. But I grew up with it, and I figured it out. And like anyone that age who really wanted it, I got what I wanted. So I started in private, struggling more and more and more. Till one day, he figured that out, and if you were here a year or so ago, I shared this publicly for those of you new, you haven't heard this yet. I forgot to re-enable the permissions and he discovered it and he ripped out the computer and then he wouldn't talk to me. So I had to wait for my mom to get home from work. And then we had that conversation. And from that moment forward, 
I got even better at hiding it. And years went by, and sophomore year of college, I re-met serving in a youth group my now wife, Katrina. We had gone on a blind date in high school, things fizzled a little bit. Sophomore year, we started dating, and we started talking about marriage kind of early on. We had both done the whole like practicing divorce thing a lot. When, you're young, when you date a lot, it's practicing divorce. We had done that a lot, and we were done with it. And so we found someone and we were like, hey, my wife told me straight up. She's like, if you're going to date me, you're going to marry me. We're going, we're going to be missionaries. We're going into ministry. That was up front. I was 18. But I thought to myself, as we got more and more serious, hey, in a few years, I'm going to be married. I'm going to get to have sex whenever I want. That'll fix the problem. But it didn't. It didn't. I got better at hiding it. And over the course of college, it got worse. And it got worse. And it got worse. And then I married my wife. And our first year of marriage was miserable. In fact, she uttered the word divorce several times over the course of our first year of marriage because of the way I was treating her or not treating her. Because so much of my affection was driven in the wrong direction. And at the end of that first year of marriage, we found ourselves in Mexico in a school with youth with a mission, a missionary school down there. And after weeks and weeks of being in the context of a, of, of a community in which people were being vulnerable, they brought Jeff Pratt, a speaker, in, and he talked about the Father heart of God. And I finally, during one of the breaks, I dragged my wife into our bedroom, I got on my knees, and I told her, and I watched as she began to cry realizing after thinking all this time something was wrong with her, something was actually wrong with me. And the issue, the issue for me for years and years is I let the enemy whisper a lie into my life. And it got louder and louder and louder. And it's the, it's the thing the enemy whispers into our lives that ruins our marriages, it ruins our parenting, it ruins our friendships. It ruins our ability to overcome addiction and harmful and self-destructive habits. And that whisper is this, I can do it myself. I can do it myself. Now don't hear what I'm not saying. Self-starting go-getism can be great. I'm talking about self-destructive isolationism in the church in our relationships. And the answer that God gives us to this, the gift that God gives us, the mechanism, right, for beating old habits, the mechanism for improving and growing and flourishing in our marriages, the mechanism, right, for the fruit of the Spirit growing in their manifestation in our life, for becoming better friends, because, I hate to break it to you, most of you never took a class on being a friend, myself included. It doesn't come easy to a lot of us. Some of you are terrible friends. Been there. I'm an extroverted, judgy, overorganized thinker. I don't qualify as the best of friends oftentimes. But the mechanism for becoming better, for improving as a parent, as a husband, as a man, as a person is this. It's called discipleship. 
Discipleship is the God-given process by which we encounter godly, more spiritually mature believers, observe, learn, and imitate that we might continue to grow spiritually ourselves. You are not designed to do all these things on your own. And so today, that's what we're going to talk about. As we look forward into 2022, one of the questions I want at the back of your minds is how, I posted this in the Facebook group, in our, in our community group for the church, how do you want to grow this year? A year from now, how do you want to look back and say, wow, this is how I'm different. This is where God has brought me. This is what I've learned. This is how I've grown in my knowledge of what is true about God. This is how, these are how my affections have aligned more with Christ over the past year. This is how I'm serving and more outwardly oriented than I was a year ago. That's what it is to become more spiritually mature. And so for that, we ask two questions. What is a disciple and what do disciples do? What is a disciple and what do disciples do? And no matter where God is calling you to grow this year, listen to me, whether you're 15 or 85, whether you just became a Christian or you've been one your whole life, it doesn't matter what age or stage you are in, everyone has room to grow. And so we talk about disciples and discipleship. And I have a few points for what is a disciple that we're going to work through together. Number one, a disciple is a Christian. Now, this may be kind of a no-duh kind of a statement. You'll understand why I start here. Acts 11.26 says, And when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year they met with the church and taught large numbers. And catch this, the disciples were first called Christians at Antioch. You catch that? It didn't say the Christians were called disciples. It said the disciples were called Christians. Now we have this habit, this thing that we do in the church in which we kind of create tiers. And we do this in all, really, many aspects of our life. And it's not always bad. Leaders are God-given, necessary for organization, whatever. But we come to the church and we create this moral superiority hierarchy of tears within the church. In the Middle Ages, it was the monks who went out, who beat themselves, who starved themselves. And they thought, wow, they are so much better than everyone else. And over the course of the development of Catholic church and theology, you had this elevation of the priesthood. And then when Martin Luther came in and the Protestant Reformation in the 16th century, this notion we get out of Peter, the priesthood of all believers, that tears shouldn't exist. And yet we find that temptation that kind of at the bottom are the people that show up every once in a while. You're not quite sure if they actually believe, but maybe on Easter and Christmas they're here. And then next up are the ones who are messed up and, you know, every, and, and they're not afraid of showing it, and, but, but, but they're here. And then you have the super servants who are just really involved in everything. And at the top, you know, you kind of have the holy of holies. You have the people who just really look like they have it all together. And if you had to call someone a disciple, maybe you'd say the top two. All of this is BS. That's not how it works in the church. There aren't tears of Christians. There's no such thing as being partially purchased by Jesus. To steal from a parable of Jesus, there's no such thing as being kind of an apple tree or kind of an orange tree. There's no such thing as perfection or having fully arrived. There's no such thing. What you have captured in Acts 11 
is that for people who were disciples, they were called Christians. A Christian is a designation of whose disciple you are. So to call yourself a Christian is to say, as a follower of Jesus, that I am a disciple of Jesus. You don't call yourself a Christian, then, oh, maybe I'll do the disciple thing later. That's not how it works. Christians don't become disciples. Disciples are called Christians. And as I said, there's no such thing as perfection. In fact, one of my favorite characters in all of human history is Simon Peter, whom we've talked about a bunch up here in the past. This is someone who doubted Jesus in crucial moments. This is someone who betrayed him publicly. This is in what I think is one of the boldest moments in all of scripture. Someone who stood face to face with Jesus and opposed him to his face. The one who he saw calming the storm and everything, he actually stood there and opposed him. Now Jesus told him, he was like, whoa, 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 if you, if you don't back down, you don't get me. And he said, okay. And then at, at that point, he backed down. Jesus wanted to wash his feet. Peter ended up saying, well, give me a bath if that's what it takes because I want to get you. And yet with this kind of resume that we get with Peter, this broken baggage-carrying resume, he was nonetheless a disciple on whom Jesus said, I'll build my church. Disciple, someone who learns, someone who follows, someone who imitates. A disciple is a Christian. A Christian is a disciple. Point number two, a disciple seeks to grow. To be a disciple, to call yourself a follower of Jesus is to realize that there are areas in your life that need to grow. It is to recognize that we don't have it all together. And one of the issues that the outside of the church has with the inside of the church is how much energy, tireless energy we put into pretending that we're better than we actually are as opposed to just being real because Jesus meets those needs. I love it how Peter, the Peter we just talked about, Peter puts it, he puts it right here about growing, the disciple growing. Second Peter chapter one, verse three. His divine power has given us everything required for life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and good. His divine power being sufficient for what we need. Catch that, verse four. By these he has given us very great and precious promises so that through them you may share in the divine nature. That's us becoming more like Jesus, the old fading, the new coming, escaping the corruption that is in the world because of evil desire. When you put someone in a dark place by themselves with their problems and say, do whatever you want, that's what you get. Corruption in the world because of evil desire. Verse five, for this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with, I gotta pause here. We're saved by grace through faith, not by works so that no one can boast. We believe that God's grace rescues us in God's grace alone. This isn't works-based righteousness. It's not what we're saying here. But Peter is calling people who have been rescued and who have entrusted their lives to Jesus to continue to build on the faith that is their foundation with things that as they cooperate with the Holy Spirit will be drawn more and more out of them as they're sanctified in their relationship with God. 
So what does he say? Make every effort to supplement your faith with goodness. That's uprightness, virtue, excellence of character. Goodness with knowledge. This kind of knowledge is a practical wisdom gained through experience. Knowledge with self-control. Self-control. That's saying no to the things that you really want because you know you shouldn't have them. And that's saying yes to the things that you don't want because you know you need them. If you have kids, self-control might be broccoli when you were a kid. Anything green, okay? As an adult, it may be turning off a screen, putting down a fork, not making something an idol, not letting your mind wander in directions it shouldn't, being captured in empty moments and allowing those empty moments to be empty as opposed to feeling the need to fill every single one. It might be turning off the news, getting off of social media. With self-control, endurance. Endurance, what? That's perseverance, that's it's steadfastness. I have a question for you. I wanna get under the light so I can see. Is there anyone here who actually considers themselves a diehard Jets fan? New York Jets, anyone? I have a single hand in here. I only had one last. I don't, I don't see it. Okay. No one willing to fess up. It's been a hard 50 years for the Jets. We had one, one poor lady last service who's willing to fess up. This endurance, all right, is what you call the clinging to something despite the constant and incessant suffering, being beat down. As Christians, knowing that life won't always be easy and that suffering will come, but growing in that, growing through that, clinging to Jesus in the midst of that, to endurance, godliness, that's piety, devotion, reflecting on God's goodness, finding moments of gratitude throughout the day, chewing on his word, going to him in prayer. That moment when you're in line at the store by yourself, instead of pulling out your phone, you just take a moment to thank God for the provisions that you're about to purchase. Brotherly affection, treating the family of God like family. That's what that's talking about. Now, four times in the New Testament, Paul calls people to do something that's kind of weird and foreign to our culture. He tells people to greet one another with a holy kiss. Now, if we began having the welcome team greet you with a kiss, that would be a reverse growth policy here at the church. The reason Paul did that is to greet with a holy kiss. That is something that families did with their kin. And Paul was telling the church that the people who come through your doors are now your family. Well, he says brotherly affection, to treat the church family like family. And then finally, love. This is agape, unconditional love, the ultimate representation of Christ in this world, being loving, especially when the one being loved doesn't deserve it. And so verse 8, what does he say about all these things? For if you possess these qualities in increasing measure... They will keep you from being useless or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. That word unfruitful is used in Jude to refer to blasphemers of God. 
That word unfruitful is used in Matthew 13, talking about people who hear the word, but the thorns choke them out. It's used in Ephesians 5 of those who do works of darkness. That word useless is used in James 2, describing people who claim to have faith, but it doesn't manifest in anything that they do. Their faith is dead, according to James. He says, for if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, if you possess these qualities in a way that grows and increasingly manifests in your life, you will not be useless or unfruitful. You will be useful and fruitful. You will grow. Your love for Jesus will transcend and find its way into your love for people. I want to focus in before we move on into something that's said in, in verse 5. I don't know if you caught this. It says, for this very reason, make every effort. You're talking about adding these things, supplementing your faith with all of these wonderful things. These, these are the things that will transform friendships. These are the things that will transform workplaces. This, this is a list of things that will transform parenting, transform marriages. Paul and other authors in the New Testament give us these virtue lists, like three or four occasions. And you read them and you're like, man, I wish I had more of this. And you read verse five and what does it say? Make every effort. I want you to think for a second. Think, what is something in your life that you actually make every effort to do? Because there's something. Think about something in your week that's such a priority to you that if the world was coming to an end, you'd still figure out how to make it happen. If crazy and chaos and crisis broke out, you'd still probably figure out a way to make it work. Some of you were students and you have that term paper that's due and if the week got crazy, you'd figure out still how to get it in. Maybe it's a project at work. Maybe you have kids and if they have a game and it's an important game for a sport that they're playing, it doesn't matter what happened, you'd figure out how to get them there. That's an example of making every effort. And Peter here, with that kind of effort, what if you devoted that kind of effort to growing in goodness and knowledge and self-control and endurance and godliness and brotherly affection and in love? The world will look different. Disciples seek to grow. A disciple, number three, also helps others grow. Now, discipleship happens in the context of relationship, and there's something interesting about the word disciple. We're going to do a little word study here for a moment for my Bible geeks. The word disciple in Greek and the, the Greek verb for to make disciples only happens in Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and Acts. It only happens in the narrative part of the, the beginning of the New Testament. That's it. It doesn't happen anywhere in the epistles. But the verb to learn, which shares the exact root with those. It's the same word, but it's on the receiving end rather than the giving end. Shares the same Greek root. The word learn happens 25 times in the New Testament, three quarters of which are in the letters. So you get this occurrence of what it is to be a disciple as the disciples follow Jesus, as they learn from Jesus, as they try to imitate Jesus, as they try to glean things from Jesus, you have the command to make disciples. And then you get to the epistles and Paul and others remind people all over the place 
to be learners, to become disciples, to follow, to imitate, to observe. And so when I say a disciple helps others grow, there's a two-way relationship here because all of us as disciples are called to be people committed to growing in a relationship and helping others grow in their relationship. Matthew 28, classic verse. Jesus came near and said to them, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Well, what does that mean? Baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. What else? Teaching them to observe everything I have commanded you. And remember, I'm with you always to the end of the age. History nerds, transition to you for a moment. First few centuries of the church, this was almost exclusively used to talk about the Trinity. They didn't talk about evangelism. They didn't talk about discipleship. It was used an argument for the Trinity. But several hundred years ago, that shifted. There was this big push to realize the call of us to go to the nations, and that includes our own, which says make disciples. It includes our county. It includes our town. It includes our workplaces and our sports teams and our schools to make disciples as we do so to learn, to follow, to imitate. We see that imitation language all over the place. 1 Corinthians 4, Paul says, Therefore I urge you to imitate me. Later in chapter 11, he says again, imitate me as I also imitate Christ. Well, that's kind of important because you could try to, you could go on Instagram or YouTube and find plenty of people that you don't want to imitate. And they're definitely not trying to imitate Christ. Second Thessalonians, it is not that we don't have the right to support, but we did it to make ourselves an example to you so that you would imitate us. Hebrews 13, last one. Remember your leaders who have spoken God's word to you as you carefully observe the outcome of their lives, imitate their faith. A disciple is someone who seeks to grow and a disciple is someone who helps other, others grow through learning, through following, through imitation, imitation. Let's get really practical. What in the world does that look like here? In GBC, when people come through our doors, one of the very first things that we try after welcome aboard is we try to get people, we, we call it connect and grow in the context of community. And we'll get to the one-on-one -on -one relationships in a moment, but this idea of connecting and growing because it's in the context of community that we were designed to grow. We have people struggling with breaking destructive habits and our Celebrate Recovery program on Monday nights. It's just fantastic. We've heard testimony of life change coming out of Monday nights. You want to grow in your knowledge of the word of God's truth. We have Bible studies, men's and women's Bible studies, working through the word slowly. In just a few weeks, we're going to launch Sunday school. We're going through a program called Casket Empty, designed by one of my professors at Gordon-Conwell, taking us through the entire scripture. If you want to start from the beginning, this 2022, and really get into your Bible, that might be a place for you. For Christ-centered community, we have small groups. We have Thrive Mom ministry. We have Generations. We have Young Adults ministry and so many, so many more. Sometimes there's something very specific. Finances have just been a struggle in your life, and we run financial peace. And several weeks back, we ended our marriage enrichment class, which we'll run again later this year. 
There's ways in the context of community to show up and admit, I can't do this by myself. But in surrounded by God-fearing, Christ-centered community, it becomes way, way easier. But the truth is, for many of us, the group context is actually an excuse to hide details. We become a little vulnerable, but we're not able to get everything out there. And over the course of the past year, we've actually had an explosion of interest in one-on-one discipleship. So much so that we've had to kind of get some volunteers plugged in, helping connect people. People coming to us saying, I want to be discipled, and people saying, I'd like to disciple. Sometimes one-on-one, sometimes in small, small groups. One of my favorite stories is one of Ben Bowes. He gave me permission to share this before he moved to Hawaii, the military. Ben, several years back, came into my office in total despair. It looked like everything in his world was falling apart, and his tears in his eyes and the smell of alcohol in his breath. He knew that he needed God. He just had no idea what it was supposed to actually look like. And so we met. He met with Jason, our, our care pastor. We got him into men's Bible study, and there were some other things as well. But it was in Thursday night in a men's Bible study where he found himself sitting next to a man named Larry, one of our ushers. And after a few weeks, a bit of a friendship kindled there. In fact, so much so that they would stay for 45 minutes to an hour after Bible study was done to just talk. And then when it got way too cold for that, Larry began inviting him over to his house. Larry gave him a Bible said, don't let this get dust. I remember having conversations with Ben during this time, and his life was changing. And I remember the first time I saw his wife come with him to church. And Larry and his wife actually met with Ben and his wife on a number of occasions. And Ben had this realization that he couldn't do it on his own. And discipleship, discipleship's not meant to be the $5,000 engine replacement in your car. It's supposed to be the regular oil change that keeps things going how they're supposed to go. And yet we wait until absolute crisis before we open up. And men, we're the worst at this. I'm sure there's some ladies out there who are terrible too. But there are men who are like, nah, I don't want to talk to a counselor. I'm not going to share what's going on in my life. And you would rather dig yourself into a hole of darkness and despair than let someone else actually help you out. Ben was a story of transformation. And the truth is, he got to know Jesus by getting to know Larry. He got to know his word by getting to know Larry. And because he was pointed so much at God, that relationship transformed him in his marriage. But discipleship doesn't have to be for the crisis. There are people here who know you need a relationship like this. And I would say, as a disciple, all of us should be pouring into someone and all of us should be poured into by someone. I have people in my life that I meet with regularly who have full permission to call me out and I need it. Who I can share what's going on because I need that. I have people that I pour into, but people get so freaked out. What in the world does it look like? You know what discipleship can look like? 
Some of you say, I don't have time. You got time to go to Target? You got time to go to Home Depot? Discipleship is a stroll through the store, inviting someone to come with you and talking while you walk. Discipleship is going to watch your kid's sports game and inviting someone to watch it with you and to talk. For those of you who have good marriages, for those of you who are spiritually mature and you're single and you feel like God is really working well in your life, for younger people or people less far along to watch you operate. They won't just see. They won't just, it's not just taught, it's caught, as some might say. That's what's needed. I shared this last year when I have young men over into my home and I put my kids to bed. I invite them into the bedroom to do it with me because I never got to watch anyone put, some, put, put kids to bed. People need that. There's no class for that. If you're a godly parent, help others become godly parents, right? It can be face to face. It can be shoulder to shoulder. But the most important thing is we're not alone. And that was my issue. My issue is I had to keep it to myself and it was destroying me. And so church, I implore you as you look forward to this year, to 2022, and you ask that question, how am I gonna grow this year? What relationship do you need? Who can you pour into? Who can you find to ask, hey, would you be willing to let me learn from you or to let some of what I see in your life rub off on me? Those are good things. That's how we grow. It's how we add goodness and self-control, brotherly affection, love, devotion. It's how we add those things to our lives. And no one's perfect, and no one has it all together, least of all me. But I'll tell you, it's where growth happens, and we're all on the journey together. Myself, Jason, Gary included. Okay, there's no tears here. Join me. I'm going to invite... Gary up, join me as I pray. Heavenly Father, I ask you, Lord, that you would give us clarity on what it looks like to step out, to see the growth that we need, to see the goodness of your love, and to step forth to be vulnerable, Lord, to share in the gifts that you've given us. And so, Lord, I pray that for those who just need to grow in their knowledge of the word and they, and they feel that, that you would put people in their lives to make that happen, that for those in this room who feel like it's, their heart has been so distracted that the, their affection's torn in the wrong direction, Lord, that you would put people in their life Lord, to help and to serve as their hearts align with yours. And Lord, for people who feel the need to get out to serve, to use their hands and their feet, that they would be your hands and feet, that God, you put people in their lives to prompt them and to push them into those things. And that Lord, you would give us discernment as we see those around us to be willing to speak into the lives of others. Lord, that we would imitate you as perhaps others might actually imitate us. We ask these things in the matchless name of Jesus. Amen.